right, thank you men. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4 in your Bibles. Cody will be in the 1 o'clock service. He'll be giving us an update of his ministry. And we'll also be taking a love offering, receiving a love offering in the afternoon service. uh, That everything that's given in that offering will go to uh, Cody. And uh, he can use that perhaps for a library, his library as he expands that and uh, other needs that he might have as he's in the ministry. Um, I can't say how uh, pleased I was yesterday with how, how he did. And uh, it was obvious that he had put a lot of preparation and study into it and that he's very serious about the calling of God upon his life. And, um, and I appreciate so much Pastor Creel thanking you as a church for your investment uh, into Cody. You know, sometimes um, we have the opportunity and privilege to make an investment into someone's life that uh, we don't even know we, are, we have that opportunity. You know, some, some of you had the privilege of teaching Cody in junior church or Sunday school or Awana, and uh, you might be able to say that, yes, you made an investment in this young man's life. Um, but there are others of you who did not teach in those classes, and yet you've, you faithfully gathered yourself together with the congregation, service after service, week after week, year after year, and you too made a tremendous uh, investment in this man's life by your faith, proving to him that what is taught and preached is true, and it is life-changing. And uh, sometimes I'm not sure that we realize the investment or the opportunity that we have to invest make eternal investments in one another uh, just by what we might consider simple acts of faith. Uh, We'll look here at 1 Timothy chapter 4 in just a little while. I want to read to you um, an excerpt from a book written by William Barclay about a man by the name of John Knox. And John Knox was a a wonderful preacher. He was a, a Scotsman. And uh, John Knox uh, had been called to preach, but had not, yet, uh, had not yet begun his preaching ministry. And uh, the entire congregation of which John Knox was a part could see it in his life. And John Knox would teach. He was teaching here and there, and uh, what they would call a private teaching. But he was not standing in the pulpit, and he was not preaching the Word of God on a weekly basis And the people of the congregation, God's people, in tune with God, could tell this man has been called to preach the word of God, and he's just not doing it yet. What's the holdup? And uh, William Barclay, in his research about John Knox, records it this way. He says, quote, People urged him that he would take the preaching place upon him, but he utterly refused, alleging that he would not run where God had not called Whereupon they privately among themselves, advising, having with them in council Sir David Lindsay, they concluded that they should give a charge or a command to the said John Knox, and that publicly by the mouth of their preacher. So they basically came to a conclusion, God's people came to a conclusion, this man, John Knox, is called to preach. And everybody knew it, it seemed, but John Knox. And so they decided amongst themselves, we're going to talk to our pastor And we're going to tell our pastor to tell John Knox that he is called to preach from the pulpit. (laughs) I'm not going to do that today to any of you in this room, uh, although some of you have come to my mind. And so, in other words, these people said this man should be preaching. He he should not be holding a private Bible study. He should be preaching, and, and he wasn't going to force himself. He wasn't going to do it on his own. And so they say, well, we'll publicly command him to do it. And so the Sunday came, and John Knox was in church, just like you are, sitting there, minding your own business. And he doesn't know anything about this. He's just sitting there, and John Rowe, the pastor, was preaching. And and Barclay recalls uh, and writes that the said John Rowe, uh, the preacher directed his words to the said John Knox, and he just identifies John Knox in the congregation and speaks directly to him. And he says, quote, Brother, 
You shall not be offended, albeit that I speak unto you that which I have in charge, even from all those that are here present, which is this. In the name of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, in the name of these that are presently call, uh, that are present, call you by my mouth, I command you that you refuse not this holy vocation, but that you take upon you the public office in charge of preaching, even as you look to avoid God's heavy displeasure and desire that he shall multiply his grace with you. That's kind of a strange thing to happen if you're just innocently sitting in church. And uh, the pastor stands up and says, you know what? You need to stop displeasing God, John. <laughs> and you need to take upon yourself the preaching ministry. And it's not as though he wasn't serving God already. He was teaching. He was active. He was faithful. But it was obvious to that congregation that God had called John Knox to preach. And how did he respond well, it's interesting, the pastor, he, he doesn't take blame or responsibility for his words. He says to the people, was, isn't this what you told me to do? <laughs> he says, was not this your charge to me? And do you not approve this vocation? And they all answered, it was, and we approve it. And the whole congregation confirmed it. And, and, he, and the historian goes on to record that John Knox, abashed, burst forth in most abundant tears... He started to cry, and he withdrew himself to his chamber. His countenance and behavior from that day till the day he was compelled to present himself in the public place of preaching did sufficiently declare the grief and trouble of his heart. For no man saw any sign of joy in him, neither yet had the pleasure to accompany any man many days together. And so he goes into isolation and sorrow. So overwhelmed he was with the duty and the calling and the commission, so overwhelmed John Knox was with the confirmation of the people. And Barclay records, John Knox was chosen. And, and I truly believe, Cody, that God has chosen you to pastor. Uh, Cody shared with us yesterday, and he'll probably share more about this this afternoon. And I encourage you to stay for lunch with us, join us for lunch and uh, participate in the afternoon service. But Cody shared with us a little bit about his ministry yesterday as a youth pastor, and he has a burden to pastor and possibly plant a church someday. And, uh, you know, God calls a man to pastor. And it is not that because a man is better, that man is better than anyone else in the church. It's because God has set him aside to serve the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a privilege, Cody, to pastor. It's not something that any one of us deserve, but it's a privilege. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul, of course, writing to a young pastor, thought to be in his late 30s, a man by the name of Timothy, and the Apostle Paul writing these words from the Lord Jesus Christ to Timothy. And in chapter 4, he really lays out some characteristics of what God is looking for in a pastor. If we were to gather together today and I were to ask you to take out a piece of paper and write down the one thing that you would like to see in your pastor. Don't do that, okay? It, it might drive me into isolation and weeping. Okay, don't do that. But if, if we were all to do that and we were all to stand here and then read back through what you wrote down, which you feel a pastor should be, or what should be the characteristics of a pastor, what would you write down? What would you value? Um, and there's so many things. And, and here in the Word of God, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, God gives for us a description of what a pastor should be. And I want to take some time this morning, and I want to look down through this passage, and I want us to see, Cody, and I want you to see what God wants you to be, what he wants to mold you into being. First of all, I notice in verse number 6 that a pastor is to warn the congregation. You know, do you know that's the biblical responsibility of a pastor uh, to watch out for the sheep, to guard against the enemy, to guard the congregation of believers? And it's the responsibility of a pastor to warn the congregation of error. Look at verse number 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 4, just the beginning part of verse number 6. 
And he says this, If thou put the, the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. And that word good has the idea of beautiful or valuable. I think we all understand that, what it is to want to be valuable. Want to be used of God. We want our lives to count for something. Cody and there are other pastors in this room. If you want to be a good minister, a good servant, if you want to be valuable in the eyes of God, you're going to have to put the brethren in remembrance of these things. What particular things was he talking about? Well, earlier in verses 1 down through verse number 5, uh, he talked about how the pastors were to warn and remind the church uh, as the church was tempted to fall away from truth. Uh, there were some men who were lying and there were hypocrites, and there are religions today who fit into these categories. And in these first five verses of chapter 4, there were men who were forbidding people to be married, as if choosing not to marry was a more spiritual thing to do. Some religions teach that. There were others that were teaching that uh, people shouldn't eat certain foods, which God had created to be gratefully shared amongst one another. And, And someone who knows the truth and lives the truth would know those things. And, and, and it's almost as if when I read those things, uh, these hypocrites, these false teachers, forbidding to marry in verse number 3, and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Um, when I think about, read those things, I think, well, there are bigger errors out there, aren't there? And then I'm reminded that uh, while these may seem minor, any defection from what God allows... Any defection from what God ordains and teaches is error and is not minor. And it is the responsibility, as God points out in chapter 4 to this young pastor, Timothy, it is the responsibility of a good pastor to warn his congregation of false teaching. When a pastor points out error, he is actually serving the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of us love or enjoy when when a pastor points out error. Don't we like it when we talk about positive things mostly? I know I enjoy talking about positive things mostly. That's what I enjoy. I enjoy when you're laughing. I think I love that as much as anything. Um, but as a pastor, Cody, our responsibility is not to entertain. It's not merely to tickle the ears of the people to whom we preach. It's not merely for people to just like us and our personality. Though we, you will love that and you will crave that. And all of us as individuals, as pastors, even pastors crave that. We long to be liked. We like people to like being around us. But there are times where you will have to warn people of truth. And you must. You must. In verse number 18 of uh, chapter 1, Paul commands Timothy to keep the faith and to fight the good fight of faith and to maintain a good conscience And so if a pastor is holding on to the faith, will be different than those who have rejected and suffered shipwreck, such as Hymenus and Alexander, who Paul says he had delivered to Satan so that they would learn not to blaspheme. And that that word blaspheme has the idea of to tear one another apart. And you know, as you go through your pastorate, you're going to find that even within the body of Christ, that the sheep can sometimes turn on one another and tear into one another, and it will be one of the most grievous things you ever endure. You're going to have to warn them. You're going to have to look out for their souls. You know, we get this same, this same message of warning the congregation of error. We get the same kind of direction in the book of Titus, and in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and all through 2 Timothy, we hear about it in 2 John, and 3 John, and Jude. We hear about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The valuable pastor of Jesus Christ warns his people of error. Look over with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. In verse 22 of 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, Flee also youthful lusts, 
But follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. There are going to be some things that people will argue about that the Bible does not give us clarity on. Don't fall into the trap of arguing about those things. Don't take sides. Verse 24, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. There are going to be times in your life when the very people that you love and that you're giving your life for are, are going to be living a life that is actually in opposition to themselves. Now, they're living a life that they would say is the life of their choosing. It is for their, it's the way they want it to be. But you know from the word of God that the life they're living is actually going to destroy them. And he says, in meekness, instructing those, you're going to have to instruct, you're going to have to warn those that oppose themselves if God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. So, Cody, you're going to have to warn the congregation of error. Don't make it your hobby horse. Don't continue on week after week only talking about the negative things and And don't find yourself falling into the trap of only naming everybody in the life and and the time in which we live and not preaching the whole counsel of God. But when time is needed, speak the truth and warn the people of error and deception. Secondly, be a faithful student of Scripture. Be a faithful student of Scripture. Look at verse number 6 again. He says, Put the brethren in remembrance of these things. And if you will, you'll be a good minister, a valuable minister of Jesus Christ. And then he says, he describes what Timothy should be, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. He says, I want you, through your teaching and your preaching, to nourish up the people that you're preaching to, and I want them to come to an understanding of the doctrine that you believe, the teaching that you have received. Be a faithful student of Scripture. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Have you all ever done something, done a job, and, and after maybe your employer came to look at it, or maybe your parents came to look at it, you were ashamed of it. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done a job like that? I hope you're not still doing those kinds of jobs. But in our childhood especially, I can remember looking back at times in my life and doing the job. I did it, you know, but I didn't do it the way it should have been done. And when my dad came or my mom came to inspect and they looked at it and then kind of looked at me like, did you do anything here? You know, uh, sometimes that happens with my children as well. I've done things in my life. I've worked at a job or done, done a task, but not done it well. And as a pastor, we must study the Word of God in such a way in which we cannot be ashamed before God. The pastorate, God never intended the pastorate to be easy. It's not something that a man should do because it seems easier, because if we do it the way God commands it, it will not be in any way easier than anything else out there. So be a faithful student of Scripture. Preach the Word. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse number 2, uh, Paul again talks to Timothy about this idea of preaching, and he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 2, he says, Preach the Word. And that has the idea of the whole counsel of the Word of God. Be instant, in season and out of season. Be ready to do it when you feel like it, and when it's popular, and when it's not popular, and when you don't feel like it. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Have you ever heard a sermon that you really liked, and you walked away and you thought, that was a good sermon? Some of you, had, it's been a while, you've forgotten what that's like. Have you ever walked away and thought, I don't know what he, that was about. I'm not sure what just happened. You know, as pastors, we think that way sometimes. <laughs> I don't know what just happened. What is a good sermon? And you find the definition for one here in this passage that I just read to you in, in verse 2 of chapter 4. A good 
Good preaching includes reproving, reproof. It includes rebuke. It includes exhortation. And Cody, it's going to require that you be that you be willing to suffer long. Good doctrine. Pastor Creel planted that church outside of Orlando, what was it, 47 years ago? I've enjoyed meeting Pastor Creel. It's done my heart good to meet him. He's a kind man. And uh, for Cody's sake, I, my heart rejoiced as I got to converse with you because I feel like Cody's under the leadership of a man who's kind, a pastor who's kind, who's not going to be abusive to his assistant, who's going to value him, who's going to pastor him and love him like he would any other member of his church. 47 years, it's probably, yeah, you, you shared with us some, some things today that were not easy, but it would not be accurate for us to think over those 47 years of Pastor Creel's ministry that it's all been just easy, you know, just the ministry. It, it's, they're the hard things. And Cody, you're going to endure hardness. You're going to have to endure hardness. He says in verse 3 of chapter 4, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. You can look back with me to our text in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. But you, we, we, need, we need as pastors to be faithful students of the word of God. When William, I think of William Tyndall, who was in prison shortly before he was put to death in 1536. And he wrote the governor-in-chief, and he asked this question. He said, quote, Please, sir, send me a warmer uh, cap. He's in prison now. He says, send me a warmer cap, a candle, a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. But above all, I beseech and entreat your clemency to be urgent with the procurer that he may kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible and my Hebrew grammar and my Hebrew dictionary that I may spend time with them and study. William Tyndall was lost without the word of God. Several times yesterday, the pastors, some of the older men, I found it interesting that it was the older men in the pastorate who said this to you repeatedly, and I took it to heart myself. And they warned and they exhorted Cody to stay in the Word of God personally. Don't fall into the trap of just being in the Word of God to study it. But to love God personally and to pursue Him in His Word. Be a faithful student of the Scripture. Number three, look at verse number seven, avoid the influence of unholy teaching. Avoid the influence of unholy teaching. Look at verse number seven of 1 Timothy chapter four as we continue in these characteristics of a, a valuable pastor. In verse seven, he says, but refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Uh, Avoid the influence of unholy teaching. Refuse. Have nothing to do with. Excuse yourself. Decline. Avoid it. Avoid that which is profane. That which is radically separate from that which is holy. Fables is how he identifies that which is profane. That which is... Those things that are myths. That which is made, made up. Make believe. Excuse yourself from that environment. Don't live in that world. There are many books out there, and I hope that you read, and I hope that you're diligent in reading and being aware of what's going on, and you're going to see trends and thoughts and methods, and there's nothing new under the sun, the Bible tells us, so we just see the same things being regurgitated in new print, a new form. But, but be, use caution as you interact with others and other pastors and other kinds of teachers. Uh, don't, don't allow yourself to start believing things that are not true. And unless we think for a moment here that the Apostle Paul has a slur here against elderly women, isn't it interesting how he puts it? Old wives' fables. He doesn't have anything against elderly women. But uh, the, the fact is, is elderly women here, I think, are being picked on a little bit because they live longer tend to live longer than men. And, and like all of us, at a certain point in our lives, 
um, our mind begins to go and the things that we say aren't necessarily accurate and those sort of things, right? We don't remember things quite clearly. And so they lose the ability to process information. And Paul refers to this only to express the fact that this is unreasonable, it's irrational that a pastor would listen to any profane, that which is a myth, because you have the truth, and I have the truth. Many a pastor has been ruined not by learning error from error or as error, but by sitting under someone teaching error as truth. Being seduced with error from someone who believed that that error was true, and so... Avoid the influence of unholy teaching. Look down to verse number 7, the latter part. And, and I notice, fourthly, that you must be disciplined in personal godliness. You must be disciplined in personal godliness. Look at verse number 7, the latter part. He says, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Don't get caught up in old wives' fables, things that aren't true, but exercise yourself rather than to godliness. And then in verse 8 he says, For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. You need to accept it. Be disciplined in your personal godliness. Don't be influenced by the unholy teaching in verse number 7, the beginning part. And Paul admonishes Timothy to exercise himself rather unto godliness. Exercise comes from a Greek word where we get our English word gymnasium from. Exercise. How many of you like to exercise? Yeah, okay. This last week I wasn't feeling very well. I would have given anything to exercise. I actually thought of that. I thought, you know, I'd, I'd wish I could exercise with my wife right now. I'll do that kick, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll raise my arms and I'll do whatever I please. I wish I can do that. Exercise is not something I tend to enjoy. I love playing softball, I love playing basketball, I love doing things, right? Roll, I told you before, roll a ball out in front of me and I'll run after it all day long. But if you just say go run there and run there and just run for the sake of running, I hate it. I, I despise it. I don't like exercising for the sake of exercising. He says here that, that bodily exercise profiteth little. That doesn't mean that it doesn't profit at all. It just means that the profiting that comes by bodily exercise is limited to a period of time. When this physical body dies, that physical exercise, that's all you're going to get out of your physical exercise, right? Just a limited period of time, a lifetime. But spiritual exercise profiteth, he says in this passage, both in this lifetime... And for all of eternity. Think about that. Some of us in this room are very diligent in our physical exercise. You're very disciplined in your physical exercise. Can I exhort you? Keep up the great work in your physical exercise, but do not neglect spiritual exercise. You know that gathering ourselves as a church is a spiritual exercise? Did you know that? Good job. You're doing a great job today. But if you're anything like me, the way I am in physical exercise, if you're that way in spiritual exercise, you're not going to be in very good shape spiritually. You follow me? Some of us, some of you phys exercising physically are very disciplined, and you see the results of that. Others of us physically in our exercise, we are not disciplined physically. Okay, well, that, there's a, there's, there are consequences for that. Uh, physical consequences for that, but spiritually, if we're undisciplined in our spiritual exercises, being in the Word of God, learning the Word of God, studying the Word of God, learning spiritual songs and singing them unto the Lord and learning how to pray and, and following the Lord in a disciplined way, day after day after day, looking to Him, trusting in Him, obeying Him, those are all spiritual exercises. And Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, your profiting will be in this life. It will benefit you in this life, and it will benefit you. You will reap the rewards of your spiritual exercise forever and ever. Don't miss out on that. So be disciplined in personal godliness. Look at verse number 10. He continues, and he says, be committed to hard work. Be committed to hard work. Cody, be a hard worker when it comes to the pastorate. Look at verse number 10. 
He says, for, there, uh, for therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. You're going to be laboring in the lives of those people, mostly, primarily, those people who have trusted Christ as their personal Savior. But at the beginning of verse number 10, he makes an emphasis here that we labor and we even suffer reproach for it. There, there, it, it, there's a cost. You're going to have to work hard. That word translated as labor has the idea of wearisome labor or toil. Paul's referring to the troubles in the ministry. For the cause of godliness, he was more than willing to endure the, the difficulties resulting from serving God as well as the stigma and the unpopularity of the pastorate. You might not know this, But do you know that in the world it's not popular to be a pastor? It's funny. Sometimes, you know, I'll engage somebody in conversation. And this happened uh, when Cindy and I were flying to Florida. And uh, this fella, you know, he was very talkative. And we're talking away. And and we asked him what he did. And then he said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. And that was the end of the conversation pretty much. I'm like, what? You know, what's wrong? Do I... I'm still just a guy, you know, I, I love life just like you do, and I like you even if you don't like me anymore. I mean, that, that ended the conversation. Sometimes out and about, you know, in the community. I'll, this is why I tell you, you have wonderful opportunities to, to lead people to Christ that I don't have because just having that title pastor sometimes shuts doors immediately. It's not easy sometimes to be a pastor. You just want to be liked and accepted. I'm not out to get anybody, but it's labor. And and Paul talked about it here 2,000 years ago. Uh, You're going to have to suffer reproach. Today's a wonderful day because we're all for you. You know, people got tissues out and people are crying and people are excited. And it's a great day because the church is for you. But in the world, there will be many people who will not be for you. And sometimes the ministry is sweating labor. It can be an agonizing struggle at times. And there really is no other way to put it. It can be relentless at times. But God has called you. And you're not, you'll not continue in the pastorate because everybody always likes you, or that you're always the most popular or... Every day is a day when a love offering is taken, but you'll continue because God has called you where he has you. Be committed to that hard work. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, I notice a sixth characteristic, and that is teach with authority. Teach with authority, the word of God. Verse 11, he says, these things command and teach. Now, this is a call for Timothy, and it's a call for us, who are pastors, not just to share our thoughts and our ideas. We're not just to have a conversation with people. Now, I, love, I love that. I love having conversations. I love having people into our home and sitting back on the couch, putting my feet up when people are there, and just relaxing and conversing. Hey, what do you think about this? Hey, what do you think about that Michigan State-Ohio State game? Yeah, it was pretty pathetic, wasn't it? Yeah, revolting. Both of those colors on one screen at the same time. My television will never be the same again. Terrible. I mean, I love just having those conversations, you know, just meaningless conversations. And I love having serious conversations, too. I love, I love, uh, I love asking about your life. And, and I love when you ask me about my life. How are things going? I love that. I love conversation. But preaching and teaching the word of God is more than just a conversation. Now, there, now whenever there's a sermon that's preached, there is, there's both the reception or rejection of the sermon and the preaching, the delivering of the sermon, of the message. So those, there, is, there is communication taking place, but preaching and teaching is more than a conversation. And he says to us in verse number 11, Timothy, you're to command them. And Cody, you're to command. 
Not, not because of who you are, not because of your alma mater, not because you have a degree, not because you endured two and a half hours of questioning and cross-examination with some pastors, but you are to command them to believe the gospel. You are to command them to bow the knee to the word of God. You're to command them to teach them all things whatsoever Christ has commanded you God commands all people, all men everywhere to repent. And here's the key. Authority comes from God through the scriptures to those of us who teach it. The authority is not in Seth Ferguson. It's not in Cody Atkins. It's in the word of God. It is in the message of God. And the scriptures tell us that we're to handle the scriptures accurately. And when we do... And when we handle them clearly and boldly, our preaching must be filled with commands and charges and calls and orders and directives, or we're really not preaching the Bible at all. And I have to say, this is counterculture to our day, because there is very much a sense... uh, a movement happening that is what I just described to you, what I enjoy so much. And that's me with my feet up, you with your feet up, and everybody with our feet up just kind of shooting the breeze. And as much as we like that, and as much as people like that, there is still a need based upon this verse, verse 11, to command, obey the word of God. It's not optional. Do it with sincerity. Do it with love. Preach, speak the truth in love. Look at verse number 12. He tells us that you're to be an example that the church can follow. You're to be an example that the church can follow. Look at verse number 12. He says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation. That's the way you live your life. In charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Let no man despise thy youth. First time I ever preached on that passage, I was about 18, 19 years old. We were at a, uh, Pastor Jeff Gerber was our youth pastor at the time, and we were on a missions trip to a church in Minnesota. And Pastor Gerber, his wife Amy was having a baby, and so Dan Chapman and I, both college kids, drove all the way out to Minnesota, and we were to teach the Vacation Bible School. And so I looked and combed through the Word of God for a text that had something to do with young people, and I preached to them that passage, let no man despise thy youth, to a bunch of junior-age kids. (laughs) Bad application, bad sermon. (laughs) The whole thing was bad, okay. Paul's talking to a young pastor. He says, let no man despise thy youth. What does that mean? Well, I suppose some will despise your youth. And by the way, don't be surprised at that because some people despise pastors in general. So, but don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Don't allow yourself to start believing the thoughts that you can't lead within the congregation because you can and you must. Let no man despise thy youth. Be an example, a pattern that the church can follow. You know, It's thought that Paul and Timothy began serving together when, Paul, when Timothy was about 18 years of age. Timothy began to travel with Paul, and it's assumed that he was about 18 when he began serving, and that would make him at least 31 years of age when Paul's writing this to him. Jewish rabbis began their ministry at age 30, and in the mind of some, Timothy was still wet behind the ears in the ministry. Timothy was probably in his late 30s. And I like that. In fact, we'll just consider him to be 39. Because I'm 39, and and Paul calls him youthful. Isn't that great? So we're going to consider it that. Uh, And by the way, Paul was called the aged in Philemon, and he was 55. Sorry. (laughs) Some of you are more than aged then, if that is true. So anyway, Paul was still young, to, 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 or Timothy was still young to Paul, and Timothy's about 34, 30 to 39 years of age, somewhere in there. And Paul's saying, don't let anybody belittle you because you're young. 
That doesn't mean you stand there and you look at them and say, don't belittle me because you think I'm young. That's not what he's talking about at all. You know, when we start out, we're, we have zeal, we have some knowledge, we have excitement, we have a lot of enthusiasm, and then someone begins to question your youth or a decision. And the way you overturn that is by living a godly life. And the way you overturn that is by letting your virtue speak. You don't have to defend yourself with your mouth. You've, you walk in the Spirit, and you humble yourself, you lower yourself. Never forget this. The way up is down. Lower yourself. Humble yourself. We do not have what it takes as pastors to pastor. Outside of the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit living within us. And that is true for me and that is true for you. So humble yourself. Thomas Brooks wrote this, quote, The single greatest support of the truth in your preaching is the power of an exemplary life. And I would add to that, it is Christ in you. That is, that is the secret. And that is what causes all your critics to disappear when your life is behind what you're saying. And this is exactly what Paul was driving at. He says, be thou an example, be a pattern that the other believers can follow. If their marriages are like your marriage, if their life, their personal walk is like your life, your personal walk. If they can follow you, and in following you, they can stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That is how you let no man despise thy youth. He gives us some notes in verse number 12. And he says, I want you, I want this pattern example to be seen in your life in, in word. That's the things that we say. In conversation, that's not what we say, that's how we live our lives. In charity, that's sacrificial love, that's giving oneself for another. Let every one of your teens watch you and see sacrificial love. And ponder on that, and think about that. And you know what, they're not going to recognize it right, right in the beginning. But let them watch it and observe you, loving them sacrificially. And loving other church members sacrificially. And so that they look at your life and say, I want to be like my youth pastor. And your life leads them to be a godly, selfless church member. Be an example to the believers in spirit. That's our attitude. <laughs> our attitude. Have a, is it possible for a pastor to have a bad attitude? One of the things that God used this last week in some of the trials in my life, and I shared this in my Sunday school class, was in my attitude. And on Friday, I sat there laying on my back, talking to the Lord all alone. And I wasn't negotiating with him, but I was talking to him and I said, Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of preaching. I really would appreciate it if I could preach. I'm all ready, I'm all loaded. I'm ready to go. It's a privilege to be a part of a church. It's a privilege to be a pastor of a church. You know what? Sometimes in a pastor's life, we can look around, and, and this is true for all of us, we can look at what we have and not be thankful for what we have. We can look at the opportunities we have and kind of actually go, oh, I have to do that. Sometimes our attitudes can be wrong. A pastor ought to have a proper attitude, and Timothy was instructed to be a pattern of faith. And this isn't so much saving faith as living by faith. Purity, he talks about. Look at verse number 13. He goes on, he says, Give special attention to the word of God. Give special attention to the word of God. Look at verse 13. He says, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Hey, when you read the Word of God, give it, give it place. Give it, give it preeminence in your sermon. Sometimes as preachers, we're tempted to read the text real quick and then get on to what we want to say. Like what we have to say is more valuable than actually the inspired and errant infallible Word of God. Don't do that. Give it priority. Attendance. Do it. Be reading it. Exhort others. Doctrine is right teaching. So give special attention to the word of God. Look at verse number 14. 
he talks to Timothy about being faithful to his calling. Look at verse 14. He says, neglect not the gift that is in thee. It's a gift to pastor. Which was given thee by prophecy. That would be the word of God. Your whole life, the word of God has been invested into you. Invested into you. Invested into you. I look back at my life and I can think about, I can think about Mrs. Harmon teaching me in an elementary Sunday school. I can think of different people who invested the word of God in my life over and over and over and over. It's a gift. And then he says, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. And that's what happened here this morning. Pastors gathered around you and we put our hands on you and we laid our hands on you and we committed you, we commended your life to the Lord to serve him, to serve the body of Christ. Don't neglect that gift. Be faithful to your calling. Be faithful to your calling. Finally, in verse number 16, you're going to have to persevere. And we'll conclude with this. In verse 16, he says, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Cody, I know you, and I know that you want to save people. It's been a burden on your heart since you were a seventh grader, maybe before that. It was obvious to your youth pastor and Pastor Baird then. It was been obvious to Pastor Burden since then. It's been obvious to all of us and pastoral staff. Your intense burden to see people saved. Well, this is the way. Take heed unto thyself. Be careful. Walk carefully. Take heed. Be careful with the doctrine, the teaching of the word of God. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. You're going to have to persevere. You're going to have to stay with it when you don't feel like it. You're going to have to stay. And the idea in that passage literally has the idea, plan to stay, prolong your stay. I'm not saying that God will have you in Orlando forever. But don't plan to leave plan to stay. I'll close with an illustration, and it's a scriptural illustration. It's taken from John chapter 21. Jesus had been crucified, he was risen, and he had revealed himself to his disciples and two times prior, and this was the third time. And Jesus came to Peter. Now, the last time, really, that this really had been the first time that Christ had had a personal, intimate conversation with Peter. Uh, You remember how Peter had been the first one to run inside the tomb. John beat him to the tomb and stuck his head in, and then Peter just kind of blew right by him. He was older than John, and he went right in, just barged right in, you remember. And and I, I can imagine that in Peter's heart and mind, he would have been full of exaltation. Christ had, was, had, had, been, had been raised from the dead. He was alive. I mean, it was a time of rejoicing and enthusiasm, but Peter was still struggling with something. You know what Peter was struggling with? Peter was struggling with something that had happened the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed. Peter was still struggling Because the night Jesus was betrayed and Peter was standing next to that fire while Jesus was wrongfully being tried that night. Do you remember Peter had had denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times? He had let Jesus down. Now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the men came to arrest Jesus, Peter was the first one to draw out a knife and he had literally hacked off a man's ear, okay? So it wasn't that Peter didn't lack courage or wasn't brave, or wasn't zealous, Peter was willing to fight. And you remember he had told Jesus, we'll not leave you, I'm not going to deny you, I'm going to go with you all the way. But then when push came to shove, and Jesus had prophesied it, he said, you're going to deny me three times. And to some degree, that's true for all of us. That in our lives, although we have been loved so much, and so much has been invested into us, and I'm talking about the word of God and the spirit of God, The reality is, in our lives, because we are human beings, there are times when we let our Savior down, we fail him, we don't measure up, we don't live up to the calling. Peter was struggling. And in John 21, Jesus comes to Peter, and he asks Peter, he says, do you love me more than these? And when Jesus said, do you love me more than these, he said, do you agape 
agapao or agape me? Do you love me sacrificially more than you do these? And Peter answered Jesus that night and he said, I phileo you. And I don't think Peter was looking Jesus in the eyes. I think Peter's eyes were down. I think Peter was struggling. I think Peter remembered the Great Commission. I think Peter was burdened and had been, but I think Peter was crushed because he had failed his Lord and Savior. And when, Pete, when, when Jesus asked him, do you agapao me, sacrificially love me more than these, Peter's response was, I love you like a brother. And his eyes were down. Jesus asked him again, do you agapao me? And Peter again answered him, I think eyes down, I phileo you. I think he was struggling. Was he worthy? Could God even use him? The third time, Jesus asked him, do you even phileo me? And Peter's answer was, you know that I phileo you. And you know what Jesus told him? He said, feed my sheep. You've been entrusted with the pastoral ministry. Feed the sheep. Feed the sheep. And at times when you fail or you don't live up or don't measure up to all that you feel like a pastor should be, you repent, you seek restoration with God and let him restore you. And in the power of his spirit, by his word, you live out these characteristics of what Christ says is a valuable minister, a valuable servant of Jesus Christ. And you let the Lord Jesus Christ use you to feed his sheep. It is a glorious calling. It is a holy calling. It's a calling that God has ordained and he has chosen you. Let him use you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for today. Lord, we do love you. We thank you for, I thank you, for using this congregation in the life of this young man. Father, I pray for Trinity Baptist Church in the days ahead. Father, may our love for one another grow in intensity, in fervency, in purity. Father, may we exhort and encourage one another by the way we live our lives and by the way we forgive one another. And Father, may, by how we, how we walk in truth and may we be quick to forgive. Father, I pray for Cody and Pastor Creel outside of Orlando. Lord, I pray that they might be filled with your spirit they would speak and love the people and love truth and speak the truth. And Lord, I pray that you'd use Cody Atkins, not just this year, but for many, many years to come. And Lord, I pray in your time that you'd bring a wife into his life who will complete him, who will love him, who will follow his leadership, who will help him in areas of wisdom, and Lord, who will be a great asset to your calling in his life. Lord, we commit him to your ministry and your calling. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.